MSW Media. Thanks to Lomi for supporting the Daily Beans. Start making a positive impact on the environment with the Lomi Home Composter. Get $50 off when you go to Lomi.com slash Daily Beans and use code Daily Beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Today, Special Counsel Jack Smith subpoenas Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Some Hunter Biden allies are making plans to sue for defamation. Judge Cannon officially dismisses her own order appointing a special master and the underlying Trump lawsuit. A Libyan operative is charged in the 1988 Lockerbie bombing. Talking Points Memo gets all of the Mark Meadows' texts, and they're about to make them public. And the second Oath Keepers trial is underway. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. It's AG. Dana's out. She is traveling today. We have lots of news, not the least of which is a new subpoena for Brad Raffensperger. That's the Secretary of State of Georgia in the special counsel investigation into Donald Trump. And of course, I'll be going over that in detail with Andrew McCabe on the next episode of Jack, which will drop Sunday and is set to feature Andrew Weissman and Ryan Goodman of Just Security. They're also two of the authors of that sample prosecution memo for the documents case. So please subscribe to Jack, please. It's free to do wherever you get your podcasts. And patrons of The Beans, if you're at the $5 level or more, you get both The Beans and The Jackpod early and ad-free. And thank you for being patrons. You seriously make all of this possible. We have a lot of news to get to, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first up, Judge Eileen Cannon, shopped for by Donald Trump so he could delay the criminal investigation into espionage and obstruction for stealing and hiding and lying about classified documents. Well, Judge Cannon has followed the remand instructions of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and has ordered the Trump case be dismissed, mooting the special master and allowing the Department of Justice to go forward with their criminal investigation of the stolen documents. We knew this was coming. Now it's official. I just want to remind everybody why the non-classified documents are so important. As I discussed with Andrew McCabe in the previous episode of the Jack podcast, We need to have those non-classified documents intermingled with classified documents to show possession and utilization, perhaps. So they are just as important. Well, maybe not just as important, but they are very important in the criminal investigation. That's why the Department of Justice first said we're not handing the classified documents over to the special master and to Trump's legal team. No way, no how. And the 11th Circuit agreed. But the DOJ said, but hang on, we're going to file a full appeal on equitable jurisdiction for the whole thing. Uh, Just we want to get this emergency situation, you know, like settled so that the Office of Director of National Intelligence can continue their risk assessment of where all these classified materials went. We're going to be talking about that and also the denial to the motion for contempt filed by Jack Smith with Judge Beryl Howell on tomorrow's clean up on all 45. So this new story is just everywhere. Also from Hunter Walker at Talking Points Memo, and this is a related story. The messages you are about to read are the definitive real-time record of a plot to overturn an American election. Talking Points Memo has obtained the 2,319 text messages that Mark Meadows, who was Trump's last White House chief of staff, 
turned over to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. Today, we are publishing the Meadows Texts, a series based on an in-depth analysis of these extraordinary and disturbing communications. The vast majority of Meadows' texts described in this series are being made public for the very first time. They show the senior most official in the Trump White House communicating with members of Congress, state-level politicians, and far-right activists as they worked feverishly to overturn Trump's loss in 2020. The Meadows texts illustrate, in moment-to-moment detail, an authoritarian effort to undermine the will of the people and upend the American democratic system as we know it. The text messages, obtained from multiple sources, they say, offer new insights into how the assault on the election was rooted in deranged internet paranoia and undemocratic ideology. They show Meadows and other high-level Trump allies reveling in wild conspiracy theories, violent rhetoric, and crackpot legal strategies for refusing to certify Biden's victory. They expose the previously unknown roles of some members of Congress, some local politicians, activists, and others in the plot to overturn the election. Now, for the first time, many of those figures will be named and their roles will be described in their own words. Walker says Meadows texted 450 times with 34 members of Congress in the months leading up to the attack on the Capitol, and that the hashtag The Meadows texts identified Ted Cruz, Mo Brooks, Jody Heiss, and Jim Jordan as playing leading roles in the effort to overturn the election. Brooks is described as the quote-unquote ringleader. Walker goes on to say, We're publishing a series based on an in-depth analysis of these extraordinary and disturbing communications. The first of the series is out now and more will be coming in the future. So keep your eye on Hunter Walker's Twitter feed for updates or go to Talking Points Memo online and you can uh, see what they're coming up with. They're going to be publishing an entire series based on these text messages. And as much as I'm interested in what is in these text messages, I'm also very interested in who gave them to Talking Points Memo. Like, why is that happening? Uh, Not that I think anything weird is going on or untoward. I'm just wondering if it was the committee, if it was former members of the committee, if it were other sources like Meadows' legal team, which could indicate maybe some sort of cooperation going on so they can spin the narrative. I don't know, but I'm very interested in knowing that. And one week after the historic seditious conspiracy conviction of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and his buddy Kelly Meggs, Federal prosecutors will try once again to prove that other members of the Oath Keepers were planning to violently stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election. This time, however, prosecutors have kind of a new challenge. They have to convince a jury that the lower level members of the Oath Keepers and associates were in on the seditious conspiracy plot. Because, as we know, only two of the five in the first Oath Keepers trial were convicted on seditious conspiracy. All of them were convicted on 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding, which also carries a 20-year max sentence. This next trial starts today, Tuesday, with jury selection in Washington, D.C., and is expected to last five to seven weeks. In addition to seditious conspiracy, they face charges of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstructing an official proceeding, and conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging their duties. They have all pleaded not guilty. In the first trial, as I said, a jury acquitted three of the five defendants of seditious conspiracy. And the reason they did that was they found the government had not sufficiently proven they were involved in the plan orchestrated by Rhodes and Meggs. Those three defendants were alleged to have been leaders of the group on January 6th and instrumental in setting up the armed quick reaction force in Virginia. The new round of defendants, Robert Menuda, Joseph Hackett, David Marshall, and Edward Vallejo, are more disconnected from the top brass of the far-right militia. And again, they've all pled not guilty. 
Quote, I think it's important not to overstate or frame this as it's either seditious conspiracy or bust for the Department of Justice. That's John Lewis, a research fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University, speaking to CNN. Quote, there's still a significant amount of evidence to convict each of the second stack of defendants on related conspiracy charges. Now, like the defendants in the first trial, Menuda, Hackett, Marshall, and Vallejo allegedly sent several violent messages in the lead up to January 6th, and they discussed fighting what they viewed as a corrupt government. The men also allegedly contributed weapons to the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, and three are accused of entering the Capitol building. But Menuda, Hackett, Marshall, and Vallejo are not accused of leading the charge at the Capitol on January 6th, and prosecutors have alleged that the four were waiting for orders from Oath Keepers who are higher up in the command structure of the militia. That makes them part of the conspiracy. We will keep you posted as the trial happens. And a Libyan intelligence operative charged in the 1988 bombing of an American jetliner over Lockerbie, Scotland, was arrested by the FBI and is being extradited to the United States to face prosecution for one of the deadliest terror attacks in American history. The arrest of the operative, Abu Aguila Mohammed Massoud, was the culmination of a decades-long effort, decades, decades-long effort by the Justice Department to prosecute him. In 2020, Bill Barr announced criminal charges against Mr. Massoud, accusing him of building the explosive device used in the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which killed 270 passengers, including 190 Americans. Mr. Massoud faces two criminal counts, including destruction of an aircraft resulting in death. He was being held at a Libyan prison for unrelated crimes when the Justice Department unsealed the charges against him two years ago. It's unclear how the U.S. government negotiated the extradition. That's the interesting part. Mr. Massoud's suspected role in the Lockerbie bombing received new scrutiny in a three-part documentary on Frontline on PBS in 2015. The series was written and produced by Ken Dornstein, whose brother was killed in the attack. Mr. Dornstein learned that Mr. Massoud was being held in a Libyan prison and even obtained pictures of him as part of an investigation. Quote, if there's one person still alive who could tell the story of the bombing of Flight 103 and put to rest decades of unanswered questions about how exactly it was carried out and why, it's Mr. Massoud. Mr. Dornstein wrote that in an email. After learning Mr. Massoud would finally be prosecuted, he wrote, the question, I guess, is whether he's finally prepared to speak. After Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi, Libya's leader, was ousted from power, Massoud confessed to the bombing in 2012, telling a Libyan law enforcement official that he was behind the attack. Once investigators learned about the confession in 2017, five years later, they interviewed the Libyan official who had elicited it, leading to charges. Even though extradition would allow Massoud to stand trial, legal experts have expressed doubts whether his confession obtained in prison in war-torn Libya would be admissible as evidence. But I think the DOJ, having interviewed the Libyan official who interviewed him and got the confession, says to me the DOJ seems to think they have the evidence. We'll talk about that more as it it unfolds. But man, talk about the wheels of justice grinding slowly. 1988. And uh, Hunter Biden's friend and lawyer, Kevin Morris, was blunt in laying out his thoughts at a strategy session last September on an expected onslaught of investigations by House Republicans. This is from The Washington Post. It was crucial, Morris suggested, for Hunter Biden's camp to be more aggressive. Morris, at the meeting in his California home, described defamation lawsuits to the team that they could pursue against the presidential son's critics, including Fox News, Eric Trump, and Rudy Giuliani. He outlined extensive research on two potential witnesses against Hunter Biden, a spurned business partner named Tony Bobolinsky, and a computer repairman named John Paul Mac Isaac. At one point, 
Hunter Biden himself happened to call into the meeting, connecting briefly by video to add his own thoughts. Quote, they feel that there is a whole counter narrative missing because of the whole Hunter hater narrative out there. That's liberal activist David Brock, who was at the meeting. Quote, what we really got into was more of the meat of it, the meat of what a response would look like. He was planning for a new group, Facts First USA, focused on fighting the looming House GOP investigations. The meeting was a glimpse into a sprawling infrastructure that's rapidly, almost frantically assembling to combat Republicans' plans to turn Hunter Biden into a major news story when the GOP takes over the House next year. The risk for Hunter, and possibly for the president as well, is that this hodgepodge of efforts is not fully coordinated and does not share a unified approach. That's according to people involved in the effort who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the internal dynamics. Plus, like so many people come after me and say dumb things and say, and I feel like if I address it, I'm just amplifying them. And right now, this Hunter Biden stuff is such bullshit. I'm wondering, you know, does it behoove them to draw more attention to it and go on the offense? But part of it's also really appealing. They go on to say Hunter Biden's been working with Morris, his friend and sometime financial benefactor, and a team of researchers. The younger Biden has also hired several other lawyers, Chris Clark, who's handling a federal criminal investigation into his business dealings and other matters that's been going on for four years, along with a separate attorney, Josh Levy, to deal directly with the House investigators. Meanwhile, the White House and Democratic National Committee have developed their own strategies for dealing with what could be a political firestorm around the president's son. Bob Bauer, a former White House counsel under Obama, is set to represent Biden in a personal capacity should the need arise. And a trio of Democratic-aligned outside groups has stepped up to provide rapid response and other communications. But these various efforts are not always coordinating, and several people involved expressed concern about the aggressive tax suggested by Morris, who wants to evaluate Hunter Biden's public role. Morris, who is a Hollywood lawyer and a novelist and who has worked with celebrity clients and the creator, for example, the creator of television South Park, befriended Hunter Biden in 2019 when the president's son was, by his own account, recovering from a serious drug addiction. Morris had already attracted the attention of House Republicans who sent him a letter in June asking about reports that he gave Hunter Biden some $2 million to help pay off a tax bill that was the subject of a federal investigation. Still no charges. Some involved in these efforts argue that Hunter Biden and Morris should stay out of the limelight, as I said, so Democrats can focus on painting the Republican investigations as partisan. Quote, no one thinks this strategy of putting Hunter Biden front and center is smart. That's one Democrat involved in the broader effort who requested anonymity to describe private conversations. No one, including the White House, thinks this is a smart way to go. Uh, Well, I don't know. Um, Like I said, you're just be giving legitimate attention to something completely illegitimate. And that's always advised against, right? But on the other hand, you know, they did defame him. (laughs) So it's kind of, I mean, then it just becomes a personal choice at that point. We'll see what happens. All right, everybody, stick around. We will be right back with the good news. If you have any good news to send us, please do so at dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. The holidays are coming up, so please send your holiday photos and just all the good stuff. And Maybe your plans, what you're doing, what you're making. You have enough holiday with friends? We're doing a caftan compound here with Christmas dinner. So let us know. Again, we'll be right back with the good news. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. If you're anything like me, you were concerned about how much food waste we throw out every week. Makes me feel like I'm not doing enough to help the environment. But now... 
there's an easy, amazing, beautiful solution. It's called Lomi. I am in love with my Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter. It's odor-free, it's mess-free, and it's a wonderful solution to keeping your food waste out of landfills. It fits into any size kitchen, big or small, and it makes your food waste disappear in less than four hours. My Lomi allows me to turn food scraps into dirt with just the push of a button. It doesn't create any smell, when it runs pretty quiet, and uh, now I throw away way less garbage, which is not going into landfills because food scraps produce methane, a lot of it. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed my plants and my herbs. And ever since I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint, I've been looking for ways to reduce the amount of food I send to the landfill. And now that I have Lomi, I am helping to do my part. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans, all one word, to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com slash Daily Beans and use promo code Daily Beans at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news or confessions or corrections, if I messed something up or mispronounced anything, uh, if you want to send pet pics or you want to play What the Mutt where we try to guess the breeds of your rescue pup, um, please send it all to us, especially like animals in outfits and costumes. I love that. Baby pictures for Dana, frogs for me. Uh, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact. We love your good news. Reminder to patrons and supercasters, Jack is in your feed if you're subscribed to the Justice Enforcers $5 level or higher. Check your tier if you're not seeing Jack in your feed, but you should be. All right. First up from Eric and Sherry, pronouns we and us. Hello, Beans Queens. We just got good news for our business. We are starting in Southern Maryland. We were awarded, hopefully, a $60,000 grant to help us out with rent and salaries, which is a godsend. If you have the idea to start a business, go for it. It's hard. There's no bullshit there. It's expensive. But there are programs to help you out. I'm grateful for this, and I hope this helps others who are going through the cash drain we've been through. So if you're looking for a new bike in Southern Maryland, come by and visit us at Old Line Cycles, or just come by for a cup of coffee and to say hi. Thanks, Eric and Sherry. Best of luck with old line cycles in Maryland, Southern Maryland. Next up, anonymous, no pronouns given. My friend is a retired Air Force major and operates a horse rescue. Oh, she's also an active supporter in veteran suicide prevention. Okay, I love your friend. Besides rescuing abused and abandoned horses, she never turns down an animal in need. Also saving cats, dogs, pigs, and mules. She took in a stray dog that had 10 puppies. Four of the pups have been adopted, but six pups and the mama are looking for forever homes. Oh my gosh, you guys, these dogs are adorable. If you're in East Tennessee and can house these pups, reach out to us at hello at mullersherote.com and we can put you in touch. All right, next up from CJ, no pronouns given this dog. Oh my gosh. You mentioned you hadn't heard of the Catahoula leopard dog breed. Here's a pic of mine rescued last April. She's smart and lively and a wonderful addition to my pack. Okay, now it makes sense, the leopard part. 
What a beautiful baby with the spots. And I love the white toeses. Wonder if they if this doggo has pink toe beans. You'll have to let me know. Are they like black and pink toe beans or just black? You have to let me know what the toe beans are doing. Thank you for that photo. Next up from Tom pronouns he and him. Hello, awesome ladies. Thank you for Jack and all of the other things you do. I just wanted to share a favorite photo recently taken with another taken in 1933. The baby in the left picture sitting in her great grandmother's lap is now holding her own great granddaughter in her lap. My daughter and sister are behind her. My daughter, having a beautiful little girl in August, has been the highlight of a very tough couple of years. My wife and I still haven't seen her in person since we kept getting or being exposed to COVID and RSV. But if we can isolate cleanly for a few days in the holidays, we'll get to meet her in person. Halloween. We had the squirrels, quote unquote, carve our pumpkin this year. New tradition now. They did great. (laughs) That's where you put peanut butters in the shape of the pumpkin you want to carve and the squirrels come and eat it away. It's quite terrifying. Finally, pet tax, the neighborhood cat watching me carefully to see if I'm going to give him a snack. He looks scary, but loves getting his fur combed out and of course, loves snacks. Yes, he is a big cat. Have a safe holiday. Thank you, Tom. Let's look at this. Okay. First of all, absolutely beautiful that the baby in the picture on the left is the great grandma in the picture on the right. The picture on the left is amazing, by the way. Now I'm wondering in the picture on the left, who is in the picture in the picture on the left? That's a mystery. All right. Yeah, that pumpkin is terrifying. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. And that is a big kitty. What a sweet baby. Thank you for sharing that. Next up from Anna Marie, pronouns she, her. Hello, Legumi Naughty. Love it. Can we do a Beans court case about a correction for the Doma funeral episode? I submit for your consideration that AG did not in fact make fun of M. Avenatti's height. I assert that it was not his stature that she laughed at, but his action of insisting on standing on something that made him seem taller in the photos. As we know, there are many short people who are content to always be in the front row of group photos so the poor taller folks who must always be in the back can be seen. AG never implied that there was anything wrong with being short. She merely conveyed amusement that Avenatti chose to try to hide that fact by standing on a box. The difference here, your honors, is that one is a physical trait and the other is a behavior and not a very attractive behavior if the court will permit me to opine. To illustrate my point, consider how bald men who shave their heads are considered sexy AF because they show the confidence and self-esteem by embracing that particular physical characteristic. Conversely, balding men who choose the weird comb-over show an unattractive need to hide their baldness, demonstrating an obvious lack of confidence. Avenatti's box was the equivalent of the comb-over. In summation, A.G. laughed at Avenatti's behavior, not his height. Thank you, your honors. Note, yes, my husband is bald and shaves his head, is short, and is sexy AF, so I might be a tiny bit biased. For pet tax here, I'm snuggling with Ajax, the beautiful and sweet Nebelung rare breed kitty. Thank you for all you do. That is a beautiful, beautiful cat. And while it pleased the court, thank you, Anna Marie, for your submission. But, you know, if there's enough people out there who, even though they understand my intention was one thing, could still be maybe hurt by something that I say, I'll just not say it anymore. There's plenty of ways to be creatively insulting to Michael Avenatti. (laughs) But I appreciate your argument and I know exactly where you're coming from because it's very true. But, you know, these days I'm I'm more in the um, 
I'm more in the corner of, instead of standing up for what I say, uh, I'm more in the corner of finding a better and creative way to say it. Um, I kind of like the challenge, if that makes sense. All right, next up from Amy, pronouns she and her. Oh, great queens on high of the Leguminati. Ooh, Amy, my goodness. I submit a story of things kids say. This Sunday, my husband and I were lying in bed listening to our seven-year-old grandson play video games online with his friends from school. They started talking about what they wanted to do after high school. Okay, he's seven. After high school, we heard teacher, doctor, and police officer, very typical second grader responses. Then we hear from our grandson with profusion and confidence, quote, I'm not going to work. I'm going to be a YouTuber. We just rolled over with laughter. For my pet tax, here are pictures of my grandson and my biggest doofenshmirtz, Brody, John. Okay, so you should uh, maybe reach out to I Am Politics Girl, uh, one of my favorite YouTubers. Look at this dog. This dog is humongous. <laughs> and the seven-year-old is adorable. What a great I'm going to be a YouTuber. You know what? Live your dream, buddy. Next up from Denise, pronouns she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. I have a suggestion for the good news segment for the next couple of weeks. Silly, sweet, or funny Santa letters. <gasps> yes, Denise, everybody send us your Santa letters. We'll also take tooth fairy letters, by the way, and Easter bunny letters. All right. Uh, I've attached one I've saved because it brings me joy. My Gen Zer wrote this when he was seven. The red writing, read this please, is from his teacher. His Gen Z kids are sweet and thoughtful. Then and now. Some misspelling translations. S-P-E-A-R-D is spread. And Club Penguin was a huge thing in 2007. Okay. Dear Santa, please send me the gifts that I want from my wish list. But please, pretty, really please, uh, keep in mind that I want to spread joy to all the children in the world who are poor, sick, lonely, and miserable. So please send joy and cheer to a whole world of children. I have been a very good boy, and I'm going to donate my coins in Club Penguin. Oh, and say to everyone in the Christmas business, <laughs> hi, <laughs> the Christmas business, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, and then there's a penguin drawing, there's a, a little elf with a present. Oh my God. Please, really pretty please, I want to spread joy to all the children who are poor, sick, lonely, and miserable. So please send joy and cheer to the whole world of children. Oh my gosh, Denise. Well done. You made that. High five. Thank you for that. And now I want everyone to send me in their great Santa letters or letters to Easter Bunny or Tooth Fairy. Please, please. Oh, pretty, pretty, please. Please, pretty, really, please. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. I think Dana will be back tomorrow, and uh, I look forward to that. Everybody, until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q, and bring someone with you. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>